I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the show. Happy Tuesday. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. I am so over you saying that every single show. We appreciate you. Does it haunt you in your nightmares? No, it's just like, oh my God. It's like, it's like you know, when the nice person is just trying so hard to continuously like press their niceness on you. It's just like, ugh, get away from God, me. God, how dare me? <laughs> For being go so nice. Under the desk. It's your Canadian vibes. You can't help but be a, a true Canadian. I mean, we got to get have some sort of Canadian vibes here in America to get us through this stuff right now. That's true. That's true. We need something. Uh, Speaking of something, we're bringing you a lot here on the show today, uh, including this. As more professionals get on OnlyFans, will employers be okay with it? Which Shira, (laughs) I don't I don't know if she knows what OnlyFans is, but we'll dive in. We'll talk about it. All right. And uh, why healthcare workers are hesitant about getting the COVID-19 vaccine that's coming up on the show today. Uh, But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Speaking outside the White House this morning, President Trump condemned House Democrats' efforts to impeach him a second time, saying it was a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in the history of politics. On the impeachment, it's really a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in the history of politics. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. This impeachment is causing tremendous anger, and you're doing it, and it's really a terrible thing that they're doing. And uh, Trump visited Alamo, Texas today also to defend his immigration policy and promote the partial construction of the U.S.-Mexico border wall. Now, during his speech, he praised the completion of over 400 miles of border border wall uh, and dismissed talks of a second impeachment as a witch hunt again, which he says in every soundbite pretty much, saying, as the expression goes, be careful what you wish for. Okay, I don't know what that means, but... Sounds like somewhat of a threat. Now, the LA mayor, Eric Garcetti, announced COVID-19 testing at Dodger Stadium will conclude and in conjunction with the county vaccine distribution will begin by end of the week. A statement from the mayor's office said local leaders decided to shift away from testing at the Dodger Stadium and then at Jackie Robinson Stadium in Brentwood, so public health officials could immediately focus personnel, equipment, and other resources on vaccine distribution. Uh, They added from early on in this pandemic, Dodger Stadium has been home base for our testing infrastructure, a vital part of our effort to track the spread of COVID-19, try to get ahead of outbreaks and save lives. Uh, Not sure how well that's been. Uh, But he added, vaccines are the surest route 
to defeating this virus and charting a course to recovery so the city, county, and our entire team are putting our best resources on the field to get Angelinos vaccinated as quickly, safely, and efficiently as possible. I didn't realize it was going to be like an either-or situation. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing, right? I feel like it doesn't need to be an either-or. I think we're not in the place for it to be an either-or, but whatever. You know, they're making the decisions, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm trusting them, and then we'll report on the results. Barely. Exactly. All right, that was What's Trending This Hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? All right, well, we're finally hearing from Miss Anna Wintour about this whole Kamala Harris Vogue controversy. It is time for your tea report those pop culture stories that are trending right now. So, let me break it down. If you don't know about this whole thing, if you have been living under a rock and not listening to Let's Go There, that's an issue. Um, Vogue mm-hmm. received backlash after a version of its February cover of the vice president-elect was leaked online, and Kamala's team said they felt blindsided by the cover because everyone hated it. Um, now, of course, we've all been wondering what Anna had to say about this whole thing, and the time is now. So she addressed the concerns on a podcast today saying this obviously we have heard and understood the reaction to the print cover and i just want to reiterate that it was absolutely not our intention to in any way diminish the importance of the vice president-elect's incredible victory we felt to reflect this tragic moment in global history a much less formal picture something that was very very accessible and approachable and real really reflected the hallmark of the Biden-Harris campaign and everything they're trying to, and I'm sure will achieve. All right, my first thought hearing Mm -hmm. this before we dive in is I'm honestly so over these publications wanting to reflect tragic moments. I'm sorry, black and brown folks are faced with tragic moments every time they open their eyes and get out of bed. And so this idea of like fashion supposedly supposed to be like kind of pushing the narrative forward or looking at what that future looks like that she's talking about um, would have been a lot better. I just hate that, you know, we Mm. see these kind of like, you know, main or just white folks in general, when they're in these positions of power, they really want to touch on, you know, the tragicness of, uh, because they're kind of having an, uh, uh, they're kind of having an awakening awakening moment and they want to talk about it kind of, Constantly, mm-hmm. not realizing that hey, we're we've been living this, and sometimes we just want to look forward to know what else is to come. So yeah, and just because I love when you bring these things up, because me myself, I'm learning. I'm like taking this information, and in. I'm like, okay, sponge, right? Like, is it about looking forward versus like I don't need you to continue reflecting on this recent thing, or in her saying like reflecting on these times, not saying it was just this one moment, right? Or is it just saying like, we're moving forward. We want to reflect on what's possible. Is that what you're well, saying? Well, she should have like, said, like she should have said that. This idea of saying we were we we felt to reflect this tragic moment in global history that a much less formal picture was basically what she needed. Like that was their response to that. Yeah, and that, that just feels like ridiculous, in my opinion. If what fashion is supposed to do, as someone who worked in fashion, is to tell uh-huh. these stories of what is you know what is happening now, but also what to look forward to. Mm. And I think when you have someone yeah. like. Kamala Harris who just broke so many barriers she is someone you want to look forward to and present something that shows hope not something that's just sloppily done and say like we want to reflect on a tragic moment no one wants that 
Yeah, for me, Kamala Harris isn't sloppy. Like, I love that style. And that shows that, you know, she's someone who's put together, but also isn't scared to be like real. For me, that's accessible. Like, I love her fashion sense. That's what I would wear every day professionally if I could, if I was actually working somewhere. Well, let Uh, us know what you think. Let us know what you think, because we do have to wrap up. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, That's your tea report right now. And I got more coming up next hour. Okay, well, next up, the FBI's warnings of threats of war at the Capitol and why they weren't listened to. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. After last week's Capitol insurrection, a top FBI official that claimed officials had no indication that violence was a possibility. Uh, But now, according to an internal document reviewed by The Washington Post, an FBI office in Virginia issued an explicit internal warning that extremists were preparing to travel to Washington to commit violence and war. And joining us right now to dive into this is national security reporter from The Washington Post, Matt Zapatosky. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, how is it that this wasn't taken seriously? So we have this one official that last week says, oh, yeah, there was no indication of violence. Now we're hearing this. So what happened? Where was the disconnect? It was a really perplexing statement when he made it. So the head of the FBI's Washington field office here in D.C. claimed last week, well, we didn't have any indication that anything was going to happen on January 6th, aside from protected First Amendment activity, in other words. Um, And that rubbed people a little strange at the time because people were like, well, geez, there was a lot of online chatter about this kind of thing. Were you just not aware of that? What was going on? And then we reported today, in fact, well, yes, the FBI was aware of this online chatter. The FBI actually put out an intelligence bulletin, its Norfolk field office did, referencing specific violent threats um, that they were tracking. So the question for them is, well, what did you do with that? So far, the only explanation they have given is like, well, we briefed it to our joint terrorism task force. I think everybody saw on January 6th, security forces really weren't ready for what happened. And what the FBI was looking at in terms of online chatter was very specific, broken glass, doors coming down, war at the Capitol. So they had this specific intelligence. They said today that they brief people on it, but what they did beyond that remains unclear. And a lot of officials would say what they did beyond that was pretty unsatisfying. What's the chain of events here? How does how do people flag it as like, oh, this is something we need to be watching out for? Yeah. So the FBI has field offices all over the country and they have agents on the streets who are working sources a lot like reporters monitoring online chatter. And then they compile that information. If it's significant enough, they they brief it up the chain. If their team thinks it's significant enough, they send it to Washington, D.C. So in this case, what happened is in Norfolk, which is kind of in D.C.'s backyard, right? Somebody in their office sees this chatter, they type up a report, and gets briefed to the Washington field office where um, this protest is going to occur. Uh, and then it, I'm sorry, no, not protest, where this violence is said to be occurring. Um, and then The FBI says today it's sent to their Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is like a group of federal and local law enforcement. So that would be like the Capitol Police, the military, anyone who you would want, Metropolitan Police, anybody who you would want to respond to an incident like this. And the thought is everybody's in the know and we can react. We can either, the FBI can go arrest somebody. Um, maybe Metropolitan Police can put more security outside a building wherever the threat is supposedly aimed at. In, that, in this case, that would be Capitol Police. But in this instance, 
you know, you get the information, it gets in a report, gets to Washington, gets to the Joint Terrorism Task Force, but they still seem to be not ready. So we still have questions to answer. Why did you not take this as seriously as you? Yeah, again, you're hearing from Matt Zepatowski, the national security reporter at the Washington Post. I just wonder, especially with the inauguration coming up, how will we see security amped up there? Because that's a huge worry as there's so many threats that are kind of looming out there. And Joe Biden's like, he is okay with being having the inauguration outside still. Yeah, so security is ramped up in the inauguration, every presidential inauguration. We had some violence in 2017, but there are checkpoints on the streets. And you're going to see the same thing here. You know, the U.S. Marshals deputized like 3,000 to 4,000 local police from all across the country to come help with security. The National Guard will be here. The FBI is right now acting as if it is Inauguration Day. Their posture is one of such heightened alert that like it is Inauguration Day. So their hope is that you won't see a repeat. But the FBI also has already issued a bulletin saying, hey, there could be protests in state capitals across the country. Forget just D.C. in the coming days, the days leading up to inauguration, we might see protests in capitals across the country. So this is a big security challenge that, you know, continues to vex federal law enforcement. And we'll see what happens. Mm. All right. That was Matt Zapatowski, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Uh, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, Mitch McConnell's response about Trump's impeachment today. Is he in or is he out? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. The new Channel Q. The events that we saw this week should sicken every single one of us. Mob violence of the kind that you see in third world countries happened not just in America, but in your Capitol building. I don't care what hat they wear. I don't care what banner they're carrying. Riots should be rejected by everyone every single time. That was Senator Marco Rubio in a clip he posted to his own social media condemning the rioters, the domestic terrorists and what happened at the Capitol last week, but not actually blaming President Trump. He's one of uh, many Republicans who still can't seem to uh, see the picture, the big picture here and are separating Trump's actions from what actually happened last week. Uh, Back with us is Amber Phillips, who's a writer for The Fix, The Washington Post. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Shira. Thanks for having me. So as the House of Representatives moves to impeach Trump this week, uh, his future is still leaning on Republicans. Who are the senators that say that this is a bad idea besides Rubio to impeach Trump and why? Yeah, arguably a lot of them (laughs) because they're staying quiet. But some of the people out in front are Lindsey Graham, which might be no surprise to people who are following, following politics on Capitol Hill. He's a Trump ally. And even though last week, right after the riots, he said, enough is enough, Uh, I want out, speaking about supporting President Trump. What he's saying now, and he's trying to forge a path for the rest of his party, is that he thinks just letting the president sit there and feel badly over the next week is the best way to go. Uh, His exact quote to my Washington Post colleagues, I think is worth sharing. I think letting the president stew in his own juices is probably the right way to go here, Graham said. Uh, The problem with that, I would argue, is that the president went down to Texas today on the border and didn't seem remorseful at all. Mm -hmm. You know, called impeachment a hoax and a witch hunt and and, um, didn't acknowledge at all his role 
in inciting what happened. Everyone keeps saying, well, if he's feel if he's even more unstable, if he's even more if something more has to happen, it feels like, well, what more has to happen? Like, why are ma- majority Senate Republicans so confused on what to do with Trump? Right. I think it's a fair question that if this doesn't break a majority of the Senate and Senate Republicans for Trump, I don't know what will. (laughs) I mean, that's definitely true. Uh, What about those who are speaking up about impeachment and supporting the Democrats right now? Let me say this here. That was the toughest thing for me to really delineate because only one Ben Sass of Nebraska is saying he would consider impeachment articles. And he said that before he knew what the House impeached is going to impeach the president on. So we, so like we need to catch up with him. How does he feel about it now? There are a couple more Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, Pat Toomey, Pennsylvania, and, and perhaps Mitt Romney of Utah who say they want Trump out, but they have expressed some of them concerns about impeachment. Like, is this really the right way? Um, You know, he's gone so soon. Why do we need to do this? I actually put, those folks I just mentioned in two categories, the ones who could be open to an impeachment and then the ones who suggest impeachment might be a bad idea. It just feels like there's no consensus at all within the Republican Party and specifically the crucial Senate on what to do. Yeah. Again, uh, you're hearing from Amber Phillips, who's a writer for The Fix at The Washington Post right now, as we talk about uh, the second impeachment of President Trump. I know if Trump is impeached again, obviously they'll take away those benefits that a president would get after their term. But would it even really stop him from running in 2024? Can we break that down? Because I feel like there's all these conversations happening about that. Yeah, that's a good question. They'd have to take uh, to another vote to prevent him from ever running from office again. I checked with the constitutional law expert about this because I had the same question. And what he told me was, okay, impeachment is its own form of punishment. If you get convicted in the Senate trial, you get removed from office. That's its own form of punishment. After that, the Senate could take another vote and decide whether to prevent him from ever holding office again. That's an easier vote. It only requires a majority. And Democrats would have that next week sometime. But you have to convict him first, which requires a two-thirds majority. So wait, Mm -hmm. would that like mess up uh, Joe Biden's kind of schedule with coming into the White House, trying to transition completely and kind of get into the ball of things? Would that kind of mess up all of that for him? Because he would have to worry about Trump still? Yeah, I think so. In fact, our colleagues have reported that Biden suggested he doesn't see a need for impeachment right now. He kind of falls into the camp that we were talking about earlier. Folks who think impeachment is a bad, is a bad idea. Yeah, it's a distraction. He has other stuff. Uh, just, yeah, yeah. Finally, where's Mitch McConnell in all of this? That is one of the most interesting questions of this all, because on the eve of the House voting to impeach the president, Uh, We're getting news from the New York Times that reports that he's told his associates, so people close to him, he's actually supportive that Democrats are moving to impeach Trump. Now, notice the way I phrase that. The way I'm reading this from the New York Times isn't he thinks Trump should be impeached and he's going to take the lead and he's going to call the Senate back in the next few days. None of that. He's just going to let Democrats deal with it whenever they get the majority and, and kind of tacitly, it appears, give us support for it. I do not know what that means in terms of trying to get votes to actually convict him. All right. Well, that was Amber Phillips, writer for The Fix at The Washington Post. Thanks so much again. Oh, thank you. 
Now coming up on the show, many professionals, nurses, teachers are turning to OnlyFans to get by. So is this the new norm? We debate that next. Mm. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Professionals are turning to OnlyFans to get by, or not just get by, to make a lot of money. Uh, Now, I actually, I know about OnlyFans. I feel like we talk about it, but I've actually never been in OnlyFans. So how does it work? I've never used it. You sound like someone's 50-year-old mom trying to figure (laughs) out how to use Roku. Um, no, I, OnlyFans is a website where it's subscription-based, so it was, I guess, originally meant for, like, so like, uh, like just people who wanted to have a place where their fans could, like, get exclusive content. It ended up becoming a great special place for sex workers to be able to get appreciated and get paid uh, what they deserve on their own terms. And, yeah, it's now specifically for sex workers, but we've seen celebrities kind of try to come on the platform and... And say they're doing kind of an OnlyFans-esque uh, page, but it's really not. And of course, Bella Thorne got in trouble, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's for sex workers, though. And who doesn't enjoy a good OnlyFans? Yeah. And I, do you think it's like clickbait where you could say I have an OnlyFans account? And it's not like you're actually going to be uh, naked or you're going to do That's what celebrities that, are doing. Yeah. That's what celebrities But sex workers are actually working hard and, and, and putting out the content and making tons of money. Um, and they, yeah. they also put like trailers out on Twitter and things like that. And so it just depends on who you follow. So we talked about this nurse who was called out. Uh, by the New York Post, actually. They used her name when she told them not to use her name because she, you know, she's working and uh, she didn't want her boss to know about it. But she was making a lot of money. It was allowing her to get by because as we know, I think the biggest issue with our world and our country right now is like, you cannot get by on one job. Let's be clear. And a job like being a nurse, a frontline worker, which is very needed. The fact that she had to do an OnlyFans account to be able to pay for her debt and pay, you know, for her living is pretty sad, actually, that, you know, it comes down to that. However, there's the other side to this. There's now another story about uh, a mom who is a high school teacher and she was having a hard time paying her bills. So she left, started an OnlyFans account. Now they are killing it, her and her family. You know, she gets to support her husband and his dreams. She's now started a coaching business to empower women. So do you think uh, this is the time, the era of OnlyFans? Like, are, are we finally in a place where it's more ac- acceptable professionally to have an OnlyFans account? Like people have asked me, Ryan, if I should start an OnlyFans account or if I would, would that be out there for me? Would I not get a job because I have an OnlyFans account? Um, I don't think so. I think at one point, probably, yeah, for sure. I think now in what we're seeing, I, I don't think people as 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 crude, but I, I do. I still think there are some, depending on what community that you're a part of, it, it there may be some type of like gatekeeping of being like judgment of people labeling you in certain ways. Um, but I don't know. I think. It's not everyone's coming onto terms with this, uh, but I think a lot of like younger generations and just like people nowadays, it's kind of like, oh, who cares? Like, do what you do, make some money. Like, I, you know, I've subscribed to my my actual friends OnlyFans, especially during COVID, because that was like their only way of being able to like make quick money. And I subscribed because that was a way to like help them. It's not like I was watching their content because who wants to see your friends like that? But like, you know, I think it's important. Um, 
to uh, if people need to be able to make money. And I think the bigger picture is, it's like us having conversations on why aren't people making enough money? Why do they have to go and do other things, a side hustle, um, regardless of what it is, because I don't think there's any shame in your game, but regardless of what it is, we shouldn't have to be like subjected to like doing other things if we can't make a living wage on uh, our actual jobs, our day jobs that we want. Including jobs that are so needed, like being a teacher and being a a nurse, right? Or being a healthcare professional. So anyway, I'd be interested to know what your OnlyFans would be if you had to do it, but we don't have enough time right now. Who says I don't have one? Oh, hey. Next up on the show, several Capitol Police officers have been suspended due to their behavior during the riots. More on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, the Twitch channel showing you the news you're not seeing on cable news networks and why some healthcare workers are part of the COVID-19 vaccine hesitance we're seeing right now. Uh, But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Michael Sherwin, the acting U.S. attorney in D.C., spoke today and listed just some of the crimes that occurred during the Capitol insurrection. We're looking at everything from simple trespass to theft of mail, to theft of digital devices within inside the Capitol, to assault on local officers, federal officers both outside and inside the Capitol, to the theft of potential national security information or national defense information, to felony murder, and even civil rights excessive force investigations. So just the gamut of cases and criminal conduct we're looking at is really mind-blowing. Meanwhile, several United States Capitol Police officers have been suspended for their behavior during last week's events. Acting U.S. Capitol Police Chief Gananda Pittman said in a statement that the suspensions came after the department reviewed video and other source materials of USCP officers and officials that, quote, appear to be in violation of department regulations and policies during the riot. And yeah, we've all seen those as well. Now, this is big news. House GOP number three, Liz Cheney, says she will vote to impeach President Trump, saying this in a statement. There has never been a greater betrayal by a president of the United States of his office and his oath to the Constitution. Has she met her? Has she met her father? I mean, until she's ready to actually do that towards her father, then um, (laughs) she can keep this whole statement to be quite honest it's so funny to me how people are willing to do something for you know trump but not recognize any of the bad stuff that her family was a part of like girl get over it yep uh, a big reckoning has to happen definitely um we'll leave that to uh i guess life continuing in therapy possibly even though i don't think they bring this up in therapy can you imagine what happens in a therapist room for these politicians hmm Anyway, uh, Montana is preparing to consider two bills that target trans youth. House Bills 112 and 113 would ban student athletes from participating in sports as their gender and prevent minors from receiving health care related to gender transition. This is uh, really bad. And Chase Strangio, the deputy director for transgender justice for the American Civil Liberties Union, of course, the ACLU, LGBT and HIV project, said that the hearings would amount to the first hearings on dangerous anti-trans bills in 2021. And uh, that does it for what's trending this hour. 
Uh, but of course, coming up in the next hour on What's Trending, we're going to be getting into um, some other LGBTQ plus news, including what the Department of Health and Human Services did, the rule they finalized uh, that Lambda Legal is calling out and definitely going to fight against that one. So stay tuned for what that is. And, just- and that was, of course, What's Trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so Bruce Willis was asked to leave a Los Angeles Rite Aid on Monday after he refused to wear a mask. Here we go again. It is time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. Now, what Page Six is calling a spy, which sounds... You know, Page Six is calling a spy. This spy reported that people inside the store became upset after Bruce Willis was just walking around the store with no mask on, but he had a bandana tied around his neck, which he could have easily just pulled up. Um, so according to the spy, he was um, he basically ended up just walking out of the store without purchasing anything because I think the manager ended up being like, hey, you have to leave. A rep for Willis hasn't said anything about this just yet. Um, but as we all know, Los Angeles County, uh, the epicenter of the coronavirus cri- uh, crisis in California has surpassed 12,000 COVID-19 deaths. I mean, Shira, what was he even thinking at this point? That he's Bruce Willis. <laughs> right? He thought he was just better than this? I don't know. Or maybe he thought there was no one in there, so it didn't matter. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe he's on something. Mm. I'm, I, I mean, I, I don't know <laughs> if he's on something. But I feel like he's been pretty good this entire time because he was, you know, he's been quarantining with uh, his ex-wife and their kids. Yeah. And like, this could have been-, been one of those moments that he just got, you know, caught like he lost track of things and maybe just didn't wear it. But did he say did he say anything to them when they told him to put on the mask? No, apparently exactly, he was so. just like, nope. I'm not doing it. And they, they, he literally just ended up leaving, which is absolutely ridiculous. And so you'll probably see these photos floating around on social where a photographer literally took a picture of him without a mask on. And honey, that is your tea report. And I got more coming up next hour. Strange. Next up on the show, why COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy is prevalent among healthcare workers and what's being done about it. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Some hospitals around the country are reporting that 40% or more of their healthcare workers who would be getting a COVID-19 vaccine are not immediately signing up for it. Other health facilities have had so many extra doses from employees who declined the vaccine that actually people outside the first priority group, including a sheriff's deputy and a Disney employee, have ended up getting the shots. Dr. Amish Adalja, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, joins us now as we dive into why this is Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So why do you think there is hesitation to get the COVID-19 vaccine among the healthcare workers out there? It's important to remember that healthcare workers are not immune to the machinations of the anti-vaccine movement, the vaccine hesitancy movement. And we are talking about a new vaccine. So there, there is going to be some hesitancy that we knew would occur. And it's something that's unfortunate because there is a lot of data and healthcare workers have the ability to actually peruse that data and understand the safety and efficacy of the vaccine. But this isn't something new. We see that every year with flu vaccine drives where there are some healthcare workers that refuse to get the flu vaccine. Some healthcare workers have been fired for it. So so this is something that we anticipated. But it is going to be a problem because the, the more people refuse this vaccine, the longer this pandemic is going to last. 
Yeah, and I think that's interesting, right? How important, if we knew this was coming on, how important is language and approach at a time like this? How should we be having these discussions? When we talk about this vaccine, we have to be very proactive, very transparent, talking about the risks, benefits, all the clinical data that's out there, how the development process unfolded, what an mRNA vaccine actually is, how the conspiracy campaigns to be what we are responding to. We need to put a positive case out there for this vaccine and become examples ourselves and get vaccinated like like I did. Uh, I got my second dose on Friday. So what are you telling your colleagues if you're seeing some of them who are hesitant right now and you know that that perception is going to impact the public? What I try to do is understand what's driving the hesitancy. What particular concern do they have about the vaccine? And then try and dispel it with information. Try and recognize where their, where their concern is and, and give them the information to be able to find the answer to that concern themselves and, and be a guide to them. There have been some people, however, healthcare workers that have been pushing out misinformation themselves that I take a little bit more seriously uh, because I don't think that's acceptable. I actually think that's unprofessional and probably basically a forfeiture of your expertise if you are a healthcare worker and you're putting out lies on social media. And that I think needs to be dealt with pretty aggressively by hospitals and, and healthcare facilities that employ these individuals. But for the, the average vaccine hesitant person, I really just try and understand what are they worried about? And then I try to try to persuade them by by showing them the data. The facts are on our side. Again, we're talking to Dr. Amesh Adalja, who's a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security about why some healthcare workers are putting off getting the vaccination. Well, here's the thing. Information doesn't always help, right? Especially if you want to inform people who are feeling hesitant, because about 40% of healthcare workers in the United States are people of color. And knowing that there's this deep history of institutionalized, you know, medical racism, how do we get more black and brown folks on board? Because information doesn't seem like that's going to be the key ticket to get them to like not be hesitant well you really have to get there are our opinion leaders in those communities to get the vaccine themselves to talk about their experience and and when people see that everybody no matter what their race are getting the same treatment regarding the vaccine that that i think helps and you have to remember that when it comes to black and brown populations they're overrepresented when it comes to hospitalized patients or people who have died So this is even more important for those ethnic and racial groups to get. So it is something that I think you you can really try and concretize what the benefit of this vaccine is to them specifically, to their racial group specifically, and and to them as an individual as part of that racial group. It it is a challenge, and I think we have to get better at doing it. And I do think that having role models, having people that have a voice and are respected in those communities, being leaders when it comes to this vaccine, is is probably the, the, the best solution that we have. Now, when, when we see headlines like uh, Dr. Gregory Michael, who practiced at Mount Sinai Medical Center, died two weeks after taking the vaccine, he had a hemorrhage stroke due to lack of platelets. What do you say to the public who sees this story and it creates fear around the vaccine and this happening to them? You have to remember that normal health concerns are going to occur after you get the vaccine. And just because something happens after the vaccine doesn't mean the vaccine played a role in it. There are people that will, will die after they get the vaccine from myriad causes. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine had anything to do with it. So that's the important point is that not that you're just going to have to dispel what happens in the press is going to have a lot of clickbait headlines every time this happens. And we're just going to have to explain to people that that this is not necessarily related to the vaccine and that you can't make these types of hasty generalizations based on some kind of anecdote that you hear that the vaccine has to have 
the, the vaccine is not going to be something that makes you impervious from death. It's just not going to cause your death. You can still be struck by a car after you get the vaccine and it's not related to the vaccine. Even in the trial, I think somebody died after a lightning strike after the vaccine. So, so there's a lot of this happens every time yeah, there's a vaccine. I think because of the blood issue, because it's connected to, uh, you know, blood and then the platelets thing. So there was a lot of questions around that. But Dr. Amesh Adalja, uh, thank you so much again for joining us today for this. Thank you for having me. Uh, again, Dr. Adalja is a senior scholar at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. If you're following the news these days or perhaps listening to our show, it might feel like the country, the world is falling apart. Uh, but according to Emily Vanderwerf, who's the critic at large for Vox, that depends on where you get your news. And she joins us now. Thanks for being here. It's so good to be here. So your entryway into the story was through uh, a Twitch channel that you watched called Woke. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain what it is and what caught your attention, specifically on the day of the Capitol riots? Right. So this last year, as there have been so many protests uh, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, um, there have been there's been sort of this cottage industry of sites that are um, collecting live streams from Facebook, from Twitch, from YouTube, from a number of platforms, and then putting them all in one screen so you can follow all of them at once. And Woke is one of the places that does that. It's part of a website called Woke, uh, which has the same name. And uh, they typically have done like social justice oriented. People who are more progressive uh, are the people that they sort of have their live streams. But the day of the Capitol insurrection, um, there were many different, you know, uh, alt-right white nationalist uh, streaming accounts and they were sort of collecting all of them in one screen. And at certain points it was like, they had like 16 different ones up on screen and you only heard the audio from one of them, which was usually a channel that was not, you know, doing uh, anything. It was like a PBS or something that Mm -hmm. was a little bit more newsy, but it was really interesting to see these feeds from all around the country, not just Washington from, from Salem, Oregon and Olympia, Washington and Denver, Colorado, and so on and so forth. That really gave a sense of, a country that was in real crisis. Yeah, and one thing that I love that you highlighted in your piece was what we saw uh, and what we continue to see from Republicans essentially on these kind of right-wing networks and them kind of having this tidy narrative to really explain what took place on the mm-hmm. Capitol. I would love for you to talk about what are some of the dangers of a tidy narrative because I even think that Democrats and a little bit of what we see, you know, Joe Biden in my opinion do in his speech, his initial speech, I I was a little like, ugh, it, I wish it was a little stronger. You know, I think that we see this happening so often. I would love for you to dive in a little bit more on that. I think there is a real danger in thinking that this is a thing that can just be done and that this is a thing that can just go away. You know, this sort of action within a country that's purportedly democratic is often a prelude to far worse, even if, you know, ultimately it doesn't result in the collapse of democracy, if that sort of uh, insurrection is eventually put down more conclusively, it still results in, you know, some really terrible things happening. Do I think the United States is on the brink of civil war? I don't. But like, I think that thinking it is about to just sort of, you know, Joe Biden's going to become president and all of this is going to be put to rest or even be on the way to being put to rest, I think is is not true. And I think that it is equally dangerous to believe that this is like a thing that can just sort of be tidied up as cable news too often does. And some of that is just the fact that cable news needs to sell dish soap and ad breaks and can't make things (laughs) seem too complicated or scary, but this is complicated and scary and it's worth engaging with that. 
Yeah, definitely. You're hearing from Emily Vanderwerf, who's the critic at large for Vox.com right now. It's so interesting because it really goes back to the evolution of news. I think that way back in the day, it almost was like uh, when it was white men hosting it, like with, with that cigarettes kind of at the end of the day, it was like, I'm going to relax you. I'm going to calm you down. I'm going to be the person to like make you feel safe instead of necessarily being the a full truth teller. Uh, can you maybe discuss how that's influenced how maybe news is even now? We're, we're trying to be two truth tellers, but we're also trying to maybe be the ones to comfort uh, people watching. Yeah, and I think that there is a natural need for that. You know, uh, when I was watching the Twitch stream, I was terrified. And, like, I don't know how justified some of that terror was. Like, I live in downtown Los Angeles, and there were Trump supporters who were down here and uh, and did some very terrible things. Attacking but, a black woman, yeah, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, it is a thing that, like, I need to know that. I'm glad to know that as a trans woman living in the United States with a bunch of people who don't particularly like my existence. It's good for me to know that. But at the same time, like being an abject terror isn't a way to live your life because uh, you eventually burn yourself out on it and then you don't know what to actually be scared of. So I think there is a usefulness to getting a level of comfort from the news where I think American television in particular sometimes is uh, troubling is that it feels the need to kind of push everything into that space where, okay, we're no longer afraid. We can step back. We can analyze this. We can understand it. And that will help us, you know, put it to bed in our own brains. Whereas we don't do enough to sort of figure out the causes of what happens. What's your takeaway from your piece or from you reporting um, about um, all of this that day and seeing what was happening from social media to cable news um, and Twitch? My takeaway was that it is worth going out and looking for how things are on the ground right now. One of the things that I found really useful about watching the protests last summer that were, you know, that were advocating for better racial justice, for, you know, an end to racist policing, that sort of thing. It really helped me see the degree to which on the ground those were, you know, just absolutely terrifying to be in and the ways that police were pushing back against them in in ways that I think you rarely see on television because television tries to present those tidy narratives. I think it is worth going out and looking for that. I think that every single human being on this planet has a limit to how much of that they can consume. But at a certain point, that is up to you to know. It is not up to the news networks to tell you you when you are in that place. All right. That was Emily Vanderwerf, the critic at large for Vox.com. Thank you so much for being here. It was great. Now coming up, this teacher is getting slammed for condemning her former student's same-sex relationship. Why did she even care? More on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. A Tennessee teacher is sparking outrage for sending a message to a former student, basically ripping the young woman's same-sex relationship, calling it a sin and not what God had planned for her. So imagine this, Ryan. You're done. You've been out of school for a few years, high school. You're in, you know, uh, college. You're a young adult. Or you're an adult, let's just say that. And you're enjoying your life, you're in love, you're engaged, and you have a high school teacher message you saying that they don't support what you're doing. I mean, what would you feel like about that? Well, actually, I'm friends with a couple of my teachers from high school, and I would be pissed if something like this happened. You know, like I would be 
so upset um, because I think, one, the gall of someone messaging you like we asked for your opinion. I think it's just disrespectful. And the fact that this teacher um, is still teaching at a high school, um, just imagine if, you know, a teenager is hearing something like this, are expressing, like hearing just these type of conversations. It's just ridiculous. And I think um, it took even me a minute to even become friends with my teachers on Facebook because you had to have like graduated. And so she probably felt that she had more permission to do something like this, being like, oh, she's a she's an adult. I can talk to her like an adult. But like, you know, pouring into her in this way that is just so gross and negative and completely like no one asked you about your opinion of how I'm living my life. It's right. just like, mind your business. Like, why can't people do that? It's always strange when someone reaches out out of nowhere and it's obvious they've been following your life, right? And then one day it's like a light bulb, you know, uh, hits and they're like, oh, this is the day I'm going to reach out and not mind my own business and basically uh, encroach on your life and your privacy, right? And so this is what the message said. I know that you want love, but women to woman, woman to woman, okay, uh, should only be a friendly love and not a sexual one. I realize that you may be upset with me, but true love will not sit idly by or not call out a grave sin that has taken over a loved one. So it's obvious that this teacher is religious. Um, of course, uh, this person uh, screenshotted this, Hannah Kelly of Chattanooga. She posted it on her social media, which is where all the attention came from, calling out this teacher and basically sending a message to everyone, whether you're a teacher or just a person, don't do this. This sucks. This is lame. Yeah, I just, I mean, I <laughs> I don't know. I just can't think of, like, if that was to have happened to me, um, I don't know what I would do. To be quite honest, I would probably, you know, say a few choice words and then tell them to go, like, right. you know, kiss it where the sun don't shine. Um, that's that's the type of person I have I would have been uh, because it's just, like, the you don't have the right to judge someone. And, and I think the school even had to come out with a statement saying, like, obviously, like, that's not their views because of church and state and the the this teacher yep. she ended up apologizing but it's still like keep your apology like if you respect and you enjoy being that you know her teacher why would you come in and disrupt her life like that and, and completely like she was celebrating her relationship and her life that she has it's just like mind your business folks like if if no one asks you there has to be better things to do and plus her and her girlfriend are very very totally. cute uh, yes. And, and finally, the reason why she did post this on social media after the fact is because she said, what if this is being said to a teenager who is struggling with their own sexuality? I'm sorry, but frankly, if I heard this as a teenager, I would not be okay. And, you know, th this teacher was trying to drag her, but this is what this teacher got. So, yeah. And I wonder, by the way, if in the future, uh, teachers, when they apply to be a teacher or when the, the teachers who teach right now, they needed to go through some sort of like training. That's my hope so that we don't end up with things like this. Oh my God, I hope. Uh, now coming up on, yeah. Now coming up on the show, an out congressman is being threatened over Trump's impeachment. More on that next on What's Trending This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. Coming up on the show, new information from the FBI on the information they got leading up to the Capitol attacks and why nothing was done. Plus, we've got a tearjerker, a positive story we all need about a teacher and student reunion in our Yaz Queen of the Day. Great way to end the show. Love it. But let's get into so much trending this hour right now. 
A heckler interrupted Senator Chuck Schumer's address calling for the impeachment of Trump today. Unanimous consent you need to get out of for office. every God, senator to call back the you office. Nothing but a racist. I'm glad for the Trump for Yep, Schumer is definitely the racist anti-Semite here. I mean, are we living in the upside down? What is going on? Now, according to NBC News, with little more than a week left to the Trump administration, the Department of Health and Human Services has finalized a rule permitting social service providers that receive government funds to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, critics claim the new guidance could have many implications for agencies that address adoption and foster parenting, as well as homelessness, HIV prevention, elder care, and other public services. And, and this statement comes from Sasha Bouchard, who's a senior attorney for the LGBTQ civil rights group Lambda Legal, who said this, even as Trump administration officials abandon ship, HHS has announced yet another dangerous rule that invites discrimination against the very people federal grant programs are meant to help. Now, this was a 77-page paper published today, um, and basically it is slated to take effect on February 11th, but of course it will be fought. We'll be continuing to cover this on Channel Q, and let's go there as it happens and evolves. Now, at Disneyland, the place where dreams are made of, it remains closed, of course, to visitors, but is, it's going to host a massive COVID-19 vaccination site. That's how you get can get your Disney fix, I guess. The theme park property will host uh, what Orange County calls a POD, or large point of dispensing site for vaccine distribution. The other sites will be announced as their agreements are finalized. The vaccine site at the park is expected to become operational later this week. I mean, Disney gays everywhere are rejoicing. I mean, right. that, hopefully that makes people want to take the vaccine more. And I, I mean, Disneyland is so big. There's opportunities to do it in a safe way. Um, and what else is Disneyland doing, to be quite honest? Now, I wonder if people are going to dress up then for their vaccines. Oh, I didn't even think of that. I mean, only weirdos would do that, but okay. Make it into something fun. Might as well. Okay, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so Victoria Beckham, she is spilling the real tea on why she left the Spice Girls all those many years ago. It's time for your tea report. Those pop culture stories that are trending right now. So the former Spice Girl member recently lifted the veil on her personal and professional life with a unique feature on British Vogue. She wrote an in-depth letter to her future self in which she candidly opened up about running a fashion business amid the uh, pandemic, the the moment she knew it was time to walk away from her posh spice persona. And honestly, you won't believe, but um, Elton John played a huge role in her departure. Mm. Um, here she is, a little, a little blurb of what she's talking about here. Remember years ago? Watching your dear friend Elton John on stage in Las Vegas, he performed Tiny Dancer as if it were the first time, and you realized this was like oxygen for him. It was a life-changing moment while singing and dancing was fun for you. It wasn't your passion, she confessed. That day you started uh, your quest to uncover your own dreams, it was time to step away from being a Spice Girl. For the first time, you were venturing out on your own, and it was terrifying. Wow. I mean, she goes more in depth and really just talks about it. But I thought that was so interesting because this is kind of like a life changing epiphany that mm. she had while watching Elton John. 
I, I, it's a beautiful statement, actually. Very well said. I, I kind of got chills because um, it is one of those things like you could have all this success and be given this opportunity, but if it's not for you, it's not for you. It doesn't mean you need to take it. Yeah. And sometimes the signs are like right there. And sometimes watching other people in their passion, in mm -hmm. their moment, uh, can really show, like, prove to you being like, am I experiencing that? Have I ever experienced that? It kind of reminds me of, um, uh, uh, what that movie Soul, the new Pixar film a little bit um, oh, yes. it's really really good mm. uh, if you want to read more of this touching letter that she wrote to her future self head over to our website at wearechannelq.com and of course keep us followed on social media at LGT show everywhere wait did you cry during soul or at the um, end no actually I did not cry during soul um, I actually cried uh, during another movie called Onward and Upward I believe it's a Pixar film Oh, no, 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 Lies, I didn't cry during that. I cried during Coco. I just recently watched Coco, and I cried, like, boo-hoo cried. Like, boo-hoo cried. It was ridiculous. Okay, I do need to watch Coco. Is that the Day of the Dead thing? The one, that one? Yeah, it's a little bit more of that, but yes. Yes, right? I know that, but yeah, I think I believe, I, I feel like I watched that on a plane, if I remember, and I did cry. Oh, it was so, it was, it was the ending. Okay. All right. Well, uh, coming up on the show, the pandemic has led some who want to start families to look towards unregulated Facebook groups to find willing sperm donors. But our next guest explains why this could be a huge issue and alternative solutions. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. New York Times just published an article about sperm kings. These are sperm donors that are too high in demand. So basically what's happening is right now during the pandemic, people are joining unregulated Facebook groups to find willing sperm donors and there's uh, no regulation or middleman, pretty much. And joining us right now is Dr. Jamie Shamanke, who's a chief medical officer at California Cryobank, to break this down and dive into this strange world. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, I I, um, I had a few reactions to that. Uh -huh. that oh, um, my first reaction was actually yuck. <laughs> I know that's not meant to be so judgmental. But honestly, you know, it, what it left me with was feeling like, gosh, I think we're probably not providing people enough education around this process. There's, mm. you know, no doubt it's great that so many people are looking to start their families. It's great that we're sort of redefining what a family is. And there's all these different kinds of families out there. So all of that is super. Um, but if you are going around an FDA regulated registered sperm bank and you know, sort of in the way that article described the fact of the matter is is you're you're taking risks it's hard to mitigate risks and reproduction anyway but if you go straight to a sperm bank you can really address a lot of those risks that are inherent in reproduction so things like infectious diseases you know, we screen donors for obvious, the obvious viruses, um, and we screen them multiple times because there's this thing called a window period where you can technically be, uh, you can be infectious for a virus like hepatitis before you even test positive. So donors in a sperm bank get screened many times, and actually we also have to quarantine their sperm for six months before it can be released and those donors are retested. Um, which is partly why it takes so long to get donors through the program. Um, but there's really good reason for that. 
And um, there's a lot of other risks people may not even think about. So genetic screening, there's, of course, genetic panels that are really ubiquitous. They're available to a lot of people now. Insurance covers them. So that's super. Um, but there's more that you may not think to ask about, like, you know, have the women in your family developed breast cancer before the age of 40? So things that you really need licensed genetic counselors to help kind of elicit from a donor history. Um, and that, of course, is we're just trying to help protect the, the babies that we're, we're trying to help create. Yeah, because um, you could be catfished. I mean, I would assume someone could be just on a Facebook group and that's maybe not their picture. That's not their history. Like, how do you make sure that's what's happening? And again, uh, we're talking to Dr. Jamie Shamonsky right now, who's the chief medical officer at California Cryobank, about uh, different options right now also for the LGBTQ plus community as we move into 2021. Some people, uh, their goal of the year, their intention might be to have a family. Uh, so let's talk about that and the options for the community. I talk to a lot of same-sex couples that say, you know, we, we're looking to start a family now and what are the, you know, we don't know whether we're infertile or not. We haven't necessarily been, you know, having sex for a year in a way that would tell us whether or not we can get pregnant. So all of these sort of old definitions of fertility are really hard to apply to this community. And I always remind these people, you know, lesbianism isn't a medical condition. <laughs> so let's not assume that you need to go straight to the doctor and, and have IVF, which is the most expensive procedure, of course. For a lot of people, at-home insemination is a great option, and it eliminates a lot of the cost that's associated with donor sperm. It allows people to have sort of a, a sense of intimacy. You know, it's a little bit uh, better for, for, some, for some couples. Um, it's cheaper too, I would assume, because IVF is crazy. Yep, yep, it's definitely cheaper. I do think that no matter what you're doing, it's helpful to have some healthcare professional help talk you through the various options. So whether you start off with an at-home insemination or eventually move to an intrauterine insemination in a doctor's office or even in Planned Parenthood, they can do this. Or eventually, if you do need IVF, it's helpful to talk to a healthcare professional only so you can make some sense of, gee, what are all these genetic tests the donors had and what do I need and what the heck is CMV? I mean, there's so many acronyms and so much to this that even if you don't have a medical condition or even if you're not infertile per se, it's good to sort of have a little bit of direction as you sort of launch down that reproductive journey. And by the way, this isn't just for couples. Also, the single folks out there, you want to take <laughs> let, you know, take charge of your life. You could do it on your own. You don't need anyone. Um, yeah. Just as we wrap this up, how are individuals supposed to be doing this during COVID? Are there any changes that have been made for safety purposes? The good news is the FDA actually just provided another update, which is so far there's been no evidence that COVID has been spread through any human cells and tissues, and that includes reproductive tissue. So that's great. Um, you know, and then, of course, everybody who's trying to achieve pregnancy or is pregnant so it should really follow the precautions we're all told to take. So there's no increased risk specifically to pregnant women. Um, so that's good news. On the sperm bank side, we did initially shut down all of the branches, you know, like everything we were trying to get a hold of. But most places are up and running again. For California Cryobank, we actually do screen our donors with a COVID PCR test every two weeks, really just to protect the donors from our employees and our employees from our donors. 
Definitely. Well, that was Dr. Jamie Shimonki, who's the chief medical officer at California Cryobank. Thanks so much for being here today. And guess what? You can start your search for donors today with a free level two subscription. Go to cryobank.com and use code CHANNELQ for free 90-day access to view extended donor profiles, childhood photos, adult photos, and express yourself items. California Cryobank, dreams start here. We'll be back with more of Let's Go There right after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, the new Channel Q. We're wrapping up the show as we always do with our Yaz Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. Now, earlier we talked about a problematic teacher, but a lot of educators out there, let's be clear, are amazing and inspiring. And here's an educator uh, who is changing lives. Uh, Pat Harkle Road got in early most mornings to help Anna Reyes learn English soon after her family immigrated to America. So Reyes is now a Harvard grad lawyer and, and will never forget her beloved teacher. And she actually tracked her down 40 years later. Here's a moment from their reunion. And it brought me to tears. Oh my goodness uh, gracious have some tears. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Who on earth could ever remember 40 years ago, you know, you know, that you, you thought of your teacher? I don't know. I'm like shaking a little. I don't know where I would be, you know, so thank you. Now, Reyes also helps refugees now seek asylum and she credits her teacher for everything, for where, uh, how far she's come and, um, you know, where she was at was probably very difficult and to have such a compassionate teacher is really incredible. Uh, so a shout out to Pat and to Anna for doing so much great work and to all the teachers out there. How did you feel watching that Ryan? Because I definitely was like getting all the feels. Uh, to be honest, the only thing I could think of is why are they doing this now in the middle of a pandemic? Uh, but that's just me, you know? I th- um, you know, this is my thought on that. That That's a good question. I think a lot of people are looking back at their lives right now and like maybe thinking about people they never got to say thank you to or forgiveness and all the type of stuff. So maybe she's looking back at her life and being like, wow, I'm, re- I'm now able to see like this person was very instrumental. And also Pat is older. So you never know. Maybe she was like, she would be someone that something could have happened and she wanted to say thank you to her, express her gratitude. So none of that negates what I'm saying. I think, uh, you know, Pat actually was able to give an interview via Zoom. And so this could have all happened on Zoom. Um, but I do think it's very Oh, sweet. you're talking about in person. Yeah. I, thought, I thought you were asking like, oh, why would someone want to track someone down like that? No, I'm talking about them <laughs> sitting on the couch physically. next to each other physically I in the middle see. of a pandemic. Um, Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> I, I, well, I think I said that first. You just <laughs> did catch on to it. But um, yeah, I think I think that's the first thing that came into my mind. But you know, I've spoken about this many a times on the show. How I've had teachers champion me in ways that mm-hmm. I will always remember. And so yeah, it's very important when you have a good teacher who leaves a lasting effect on you because it really determines what a child's future could look like. It's a mixture of things. It's the perfect storm. And so yeah, it's very sweet. But maybe be a little smarter in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, got it. All right, that does it for our Yes Queen of the Day. <laughs> yes, Queen. It's not Yes Queen if I don't bring a little negativity. <laughs> you know, a little sass, <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, and that does it for our show today, but we are back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about 
signal this messaging app and why everybody is downloading it, plus how the pandemic may have changed AA and recovery culture, but for the good, for uh, in surprisingly hopeful ways. We've talked about the other side of it, but we're going to be uh, sharing a different perspective tomorrow. Plus, if you missed any of our podcasts, be sure to download the radio.com app, search Let's Go There to check out our podcast or where podcasts are available, of course. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. And stay tuned for Love Line with Dr. Chris right after this. All right. Bye, y'all. Have a good night.